Okay. I'll pray and then we'll start. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you go before us and that you are always with us. Lord, I just ask that um, tonight you'd speak to each of us, that we had come away hearing from you, um, seeing you, being touched by you in some way or another, Lord. God, thank you that you still speak to us. We love you. Amen. I was uh, getting kind of a, I had a little bit of a humorous thing happen on um, Sunday last week. Here, I mentioned about, you know, hearing, hearing from God and God still speaking to us and taking advantage of, you know, people, people ministering to us and, and God's voice and how he communicates with us and can affect us. And so, <clears throat> the wonderful Pastor Tuttle Sunday decides that he wants to do an activation exercise in which he asks everyone in the church, uh, just ask God what you could do to be a better spouse. And uh, I'm like, man, it's like five years in a row, perfect. Um, and so anyway, I asked the Lord, like, what do you, you know, what do I need to do to be a better spouse? And <clears throat> So we get done, and uh, right away, I mean, as soon as I asked him, it was just ludicrous. He tells me something. I'm like, oh, yeah, fine. And um, it wasn't a big deal, but uh, we get in the car, and, and Mary's like, hey, what'd you, what'd you get? And I'm like, nothing. What could I have to change? <clears throat> and she's like, no, seriously, what did you get? <laughs> and uh, she's just, she's not buying my perfection yet, I guess. But so I said, oh, okay, I, I got, um, I'm supposed to stop teasing you, you know. And because um, I always, I joke with her and I use ridiculousness when I tease her, you know. So I'll say just absolutely ridiculous things that couldn't be real. But her background was one in which if someone teased you, they kind of meant something when they said it. They didn't want to say it to you, but they wanted to send a message to you, so they kind of communicated that way. So she's never really appreciated my wonderful sense of humor. Um, so I tell her this, well, the Lord told me I'm to stop teasing you. And she's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, why? Is that, that Seriously? You have to stop teasing me? I'm like, that's what he said. She, she literally went, yes! I was like, why would you react like that? Because he told me I had to laugh at myself. I was like, how does this work out for me at all? And so anyway, but what was kind of amazing about it was it was really evident that the Lord was very clearly speaking in this situation. And um, it caused me once again to kind of just stop and acknowledge and appreciate the wonder that we have, that God actually communicates to us, and he speaks to us individually. And 
I was sharing that story with Pastor <clears throat> a little while ago, and he was, he laughed at me, and then he mocked me, and then he told me what, you know, he had happen, and it was totally different than my situation, totally relevant to his situation, and then he told me how God challenged him to actually deliver on what he told him to do during the week, and we kind of shared stories, and I was like, how amazing is this that God is literally involved in those kind of details that he is interested in us personally and individually and helping us improve our marriages and relationships and our lives in general. Um, So anyway, uh, that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with anything um, else other than I thought it was kind of cool. But I want to share about the life of John tonight. Um, And I'll kind of give you a little bit of background as to why and how I started to really start to have to appreciate the life of John. Um, I, ha- I now have a man crush on John. Um, he's, he's, he's pretty cool. Um, but I don't think most of us, I don't think John's like the first guy most of us think of when we're like, man, if I got to be an apostle, I would pick John. Um, everybody likes Peter, and, uh, you know, we love Paul. He's the one that we all like to quote because he's a genius, and, but John was this kind of this guy who was always around, and then um, in 2005, we went to the International House of Prayer, and um, at that time, I was really intent on being this really radical, loud, vocal, passionate, you know, I was a world changer, a revivalist, and that's how I saw myself, that's what I wanted to be, I had this enormous list of things that I was going to accomplish for God, um, you know, a revival a year starting, just being one of the many. Um, so here we went down to IHOP, and we had this group of little old ladies. Ah, these, <laughs> no, that wasn't that year. The first year, oh, <laughs> I got to tell you a story. If you want an opportunity to be offended uh, at the Spirit of God, this is it. So we go to the International House of Prayer for their One Thing Conference, and while we're there, there were eight of us. One of the ladies that was with us said, I know a couple of ladies that minister in the prophetic. Would you like them to come and minister to you? And we had some familiarity with it, but it was relatively new to us still at the time. So we said, sure. And um, after one of the sessions, these two ladies come across the room, and they get flagged down, and they come over. And one is this woman. She's about 5'11". She's very stately, regal, dignified, composed. I mean, just elegance and grace exuded from her. And then her little counterpart was this little, I'll call her a spark plug of a woman. Um, She wasn't too tall. Uh, She was... um, not uh, slenderly built. Um, I heard someone today say she was weight challenged. Um, so she was a little bit of a bigger gal. She was short. And uh, they came over to pray for us. And so uh, they come over and they do one of these, Holy Spirit, just come. And as soon as the Holy Spirit came, the big 
tall, stately woman. Nothing happens. She just begins to speak over some of the people that are standing there. And the, the first two that were there were Adam Tuttle and Ed Bordeaux, two friends of mine. And we were kind of running together at the time, and we were all wanting to be radical and crazy and revivalists and all this world-changing stuff. And <clears throat> Ed and Adam are there, front of the line, and these two women start to prophesy over them. And the stately woman is very, very accurate in her prophetic words. They've never met us. They don't know our names. And I'm just like, dang. Well, the little lady suddenly is drunk. Um, and if you've never experienced this, it's an interesting thing. She, uh, she literally could not hold herself up. She couldn't stand up. You know? And so right away, I'm immediately I'm offended. I'm just like, this is not real. This is obnoxious. This can't be the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's subject to the prophet. You know, I'm clicking through my list. And I'm partially frustrated because I'm literally having to stand behind her and hold her up. And she was not on the smaller side. And I was, I literally was in a three-point stance like this, pushing on her, holding her up. But she starts to prophesy, and it was more accurate by far than the other lady, anything that she was giving her. We're like, holy cow. So now I'm really getting offended because she was right. And I'm trying to sort through, is this flesh mixed with spirit? Is this whole thing the spirit? And eventually, over the years, God's just like, just shut up and just take what I'm giving you and deal with the other. So... Um, but it was quite a comical situation. In fact, Adam gets prophesied over first, and I'm holding this lady up, and I'm starting to sweat. Literally, I had sweat starting to come down my face. And so when she gets done with Adam, he comes over, he's like, I'll take a turn. And he gets in there, and he's holding her up, and she's just, woo, And so she prophesies over Adam and Ed, and Adam uh, gets a uh, fire starter. Um, was, was the word that he got. You're a fire starter. I see you starting fires all over the place. And he's just, you know, he's shaking and he's just so pumped. That's when he got the nickname Jojo. Um, and then Ed gets to get prophesied over and you're a flamethrower and you're, you're starting flames. And there's a girl sitting in the, in the seats behind us listening. She doesn't know who we are, but she's drawing pictures and she draws this huge flamethrower and gives it to Ed, this like prophetic gift. And I'm like, this is sweet. I'm up next. And I get in there. And the little drunk lady suddenly goes, oh, you are the disciple that Jesus loved. You're like John the beloved. And I'm like, what the frick is this? Where's the flames and the fire and the nothing? It was all just lovey, tender, sweet. Well, um, interestingly enough, this was not me at all um, at this phase of life. Tenderness was like, um, it was like what your steak is supposed to be, you know, tender. And uh, it wasn't something that you were supposed to be. But <clears throat> what was really amazing to me was both of these ladies had really similar words about John. I don't know anything about John. I can't think of anything impressive about John. Later I found out he was one of the sons of thunder, so I was like, fine, I'll, that's fine, that's close enough. Um, but what was really amazing in that marked it as a word from God and not just a word that some lady conjured up 
was that when God speaks to us, it creates. His word creates. So God created all things by speaking, and out of nothing, something became. When God speaks to us truly, suddenly what was not becomes something that he spoke. So you don't actually have to be anything or a certain way for God to turn you into that. All he needs to do is speak, and he can create a new reality in you. Um, God's word, when he speaks, literally changes you. So for my own experience, I was not a tender person, gentle person. I wasn't an overly loving person. I didn't feel really all that loved. I didn't really reflect all that much love. So this whole, like, John the Beloved thing was a really foreign concept for me at the time. God speaks it, and immediately he who began a good work in me by speaking this into it starts to bring it to completion. And I start going through this process in my life where I'm learning about love. And I'm learning to identify not as someone who's going to accomplish great things for God, but but as someone who's loved by God. And in the process, I began to study the life of John. I figured, well, if God said I have this John thing uh, on my life, I better start examining who is John. What is John about? What is John's life? What kind of person was this? So I just want to take uh, a little while and point out some things about John that, um, that I admire. And where I want to end today, I had a really weird experience this week. And um, I was reading, I somehow ended up in the book of Revelation. I was in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 7. And that's written by John. Um, So I'm reading something that John said in Revelation 7. In this one sentence, and I'll get there at the end. I must have read it a hundred times. And it's the most simplistic I was telling Pastor about it beforehand, and he just had that really puzzled look on his face, like, okay. And it, it probably won't mean anything to you, but I got so hung up on this phrase in the heart of the man that was, that was saying it, and I was like, I got I to gotta go back and, and talk about John. So for a few minutes here, um, just humor me. Who was John? <clears throat> John was the son of a commercial fisherman. So I know, like, Peter was a fisherman, and, but John's dad was actually a commercial fisherman, had a business, and had people working for him. So he was probably from a fairly affluent family. He walked away from the family business with his brother, James, and became one of the followers of Jesus. So John was probably actually having to sacrifice something to follow Jesus. He wasn't some impoverished goon. Um, who really had no other options. He actually had a future. He had a business. He had a company that he would inherit. He had people that worked for his dad and his company that um, probably would have been a pretty nice setup. And he came from an affluent family, and here he is wandering in the wildernesses with Jesus. John actually sacrificed something to follow Jesus. Um, From a likely affluent family for the culture, also gives us a little bit of an idea of of how this guy lived and what he was like. Brother of James, together Jesus called them sons of thunder. He was one of Jesus' three closest friends. Um, John had guts. 
So if you remember, there's a story when John goes into a village and they're not listening to the message that they're preaching. And John comes back to Jesus with a really honest question. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume the village? Because that makes sense to me. So I, th- I feel like you get a little bit of a glimpse of John here where he's passionate. You know, he's in love with Jesus. He's excited about him, and he just kind of feels like everyone should listen. You should hear the message, you receive the message, you respond to the message, you follow him just like we did. That's the way this works. And I was getting short of breath, but it's a little tight. Ooh. It's wintertime. Start working out in a month. Um, and uh, so he's, he's ready, he's followed, he answered the call, and he expects the same out of everyone else. And all of a sudden, he goes into a town, and they're not listening John's instant response is, God, smite the smite, just boom, be done with them. They need to follow you. So I see this true um, awareness of justice in John, which makes some of his later writings even more remarkable when you think about 1 John and some of the things that he wrote there, uh, some of the things that are in the book of Revelation. John had a distinct understanding of justice and what should come upon a people that reject Jesus because that's what should come upon people that reject Jesus and will and and does. So John had guts. He also had a distinct understanding of justice. John wanted to be great. Um, Do you remember twice right in a row in the scripture, the disciples come and John and James initiate a conversation about who will be the greatest. Later, the sons of Zebedee, their mother, goes to Jesus and says, I want one of my sons on your left hand and the other one of my sons on your right hand. That's James and John's mom. Um, I would assume they were probably talking, the three of them, and she figured she had the best shot. But maybe she was just being a mom and getting involved in things that she shouldn't. Either way... James and John took some heat about it, but John quite clearly wanted to be great. So I was starting to see like, hey, John's not that different than me. You know, like my thoughts at the time were that if I went somewhere and, you know, preached, either salvation would come or like the uh, witnesses in the book of Revelation, if they rejected it, fire would just come from my mouth and consume the enemies of God. And I was like, hey, I kind of starting to connect to John here a little bit. This is great. And I really wanted to do great things for God. And you could see here John had similar desires. I want to be great. I want to be at your right hand and at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus never tells them that's wrong to want that. He just tells them how to do it. But what struck me the most about John that started in John chapter 6 was that John, seemingly more than any of the other apostles, wanted simply to be with Jesus. That's it. And it's, you can see a separation happening between John and the rest of the disciples just through little things that are mentioned as you read through the Gospels, but it really, uh, you, you really see it happen the most in the trial of Jesus and at the cross. But let's start in John 6. John 6, John is the one writing this. And 
So I'm putting my, myself in the, in the position of the writer. Each of the Gospels was written by a different writer, right? So I would assume that the things that they were writing were the most noteworthy to them. When you read what Mark wrote, it was like a hit list of what Jesus had done. Mark was reputed to be like Peter's right hand. So when Peter would go around and teach, Mark would document everything. And so when Mark writes, you get the impression that what he's writing about is a kid who he was young with bated breath is watching all the cool things that Jesus did. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And he was so amazed by all the stuff Jesus did that he just one after the other. Matthew, he's much more thoughtful, um, tells a lot of stories about the kingdom. So I could kind of see like Ryan Stansky and Matthew being, being buddies. Luke is a guy, he's a physician. He's obviously deeply intellectual. He's into the history of how things happened and the genealogies. John is writing from a different perspective. He's writing from a perspective of what appears to me the one who knew Jesus better than anyone. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when I read what they wrote, they talk a lot about what he said. They talk a lot about what he did. But more than any of the others, John wrote from what I can see about who he was. And in John 6, he tells a really cool story. And he's the only one that told the story, so it must have stood out to him. In John 6, right after Jesus gets done feeding one of the four, either the four or 5,000, the people want to make him king. And Jesus isn't ready to become king, so he says something really, really offensive to all the people. Do you remember what he says? If you want to come after me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone at that time was like, he's out to lunch, we're out of here. And everybody bailed. The crowds dispersed. Even many who had been following Jesus left him. It says many of the disciples abandoned him at that time. Jesus then turns to the 12 and said, would you go also? And Peter has this amazing statement. He says, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter is saying something that I think must have so resonated with John that he had to record it. I can just picture John sitting there listening and Jesus says, would you all go as well? And Peter turns and goes, Lord, where else are we going to go? You're the only one who has the words of life. And John goes, it doesn't matter if I understand. It doesn't even matter what he does. All that matters is that I'm close to him because he has the words of life. And I could see John just sitting there going, oh, I wish I'd have been the one to say that. And and so he records it instead, so it's almost as good. So right away you see John realizing and recording how valuable it is just to be with Jesus. Where else can we go? You could tell me to eat your flesh and drink your blood. Lord, okay, where else am I going to go? In John um, 15, we see John's record, his writing about abiding in the vine. And he's the only one who wrote about Jesus' teaching on abiding in the vine. All the other guys are talking about the kingdom. They're all talking about the signs and the wonders and all the amazing the works that you're going to do. And those are fantastic But I think John got something that no one else did. He got it that the whole thing happened 
Not because we had power and we could go do great works. Not because we had a calling and a destiny and dreams and a future, but because we were with Jesus. That's why all the other things that happen in a life happen are because we're with Jesus. And I think John was writing from this position of, all I want is to be with you. Jesus, you can say anything you want. You can offend me. You can offend everybody else. I don't even know what the right answer is, but I'm not going away. I'm just going to stay here, and eventually, I'm sure, we'll figure it out. If I abide in the vine, if I just stay with you and do whatever you say and stay right here with you, I know I'm going to be okay. A little bit later in the book of John, he records how Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And John is emphasizing these things, not about the works of Jesus so much, but about who Jesus was and about being near to Jesus. John's writings are so amazing because All the other guys wrote about the miracles, but John writes about the things Jesus said about doing the miracles. The things about, it's not me that's doing anything. It's just my Father. I'm doing what the Father's doing. These things are happening because I'm with my Father. My Father's at work, and these things happen because I'm with my Father. John heard those things and recorded those things, not just the miracles, but he heard the heart that was behind the miracle. And the heart that was behind the miracle was, if I can stay close to God, I don't need to worry about what's going to happen. There will be amazing things that come in my life. There will be miracles. There will be signs. There will be wonders. There will be healings. There will be deliverances. But all that I care about is that I was with my Father. I was with Jesus. What this produced was John being the only disciple, one, that was at the trial of Jesus. He got to witness the trial of Jesus. And two, he's the only disciple that was recorded to be at the cross when Jesus was crucified. That's remarkable to me. These are guys who had gone through it all with Jesus. They had had opportunity to leave. They had had opportunity to be offended. They had sworn their allegiance. Peter, obviously, being the foremost of the ones who denied Jesus, But all of them bailed. Yet John is the only one who's there at the cross. And I think it's just going back to this heart position where he's going, I don't care what's happening, I just know that I've got to be with Jesus. Look at the example in the Last Supper. The, the Last Supper's happening. Jesus makes reference that one of the guys is going to betray Jesus. Hey, guys, it'd be like us sitting in a room. There's like 10 of us. Okay, guys, one of you is going to betray Jesus. You know, uh, oh, phooey, I hope it's not me, right? Who's it going to be? That's the next question, right? Everybody starts looking around. Is it going to be her? It's straight over there. I knew it. So here's what happens. The disciples, as with all of us, because right now everybody's thinking, they're just like passing around their own. I can see, I can see Alex, is, he's got the best seat in the house. He's in the back. He can see everybody else. He's looking. Yeah, look at him. He's not even watching the front. Oh, he's totally on his cell phone. It's going to be him. Look at, he's got it. Yeah, that's, that's, 
Not only cell phone, that's Facebook. Oh my goodness. So the disciples were having the same reaction. They're sitting around and they're like, oh dang, one of us. I don't think it's going to be me. Oh, Peter gets an idea. John, John, John. So John is sitting beside Jesus. So at the Last Supper, they position around the table with the guest of honor at the head, and then the one immediately to his right is in the place of highest honor next to the guest, or to to the guest of honor. So whoever's sitting immediately to his right and would have the ability to recline against his chest is the number two guy in the room. It's the most important guy in the room to the guest of honor. And so Peter's sitting here and he's thinking, I want to know who's doing it. And he goes, oh, John. And because you would have had to talk in whispers, Peter probably was trying to get it. He was giving him a signal. His commentators say that they wouldn't have just said, Peter wouldn't have just said, hey, John, you ask him. Um, because that was totally, you just didn't do that. So he would have been trying to give John a symbol. You know, who's the, who's the guy that, the traitor? Who's the traitor? And he's signaling John. And so John reclines against Jesus and says, who's it going to be? And he whispers it to him. And Jesus responds, it's going to be the one that I give this bread to. And he dips the bread and he gives it to Judas. So I'm wondering, did John know? Was John the only one? Because Jesus wouldn't have said it at the time loud enough for everyone in the room because it's obviously made clear because no one else in the room knew who it was going to be. Even when Judas got up and left, they still didn't understand that it was going to be him betraying Jesus. But it seems as though John would have known. Remarkably, Peter knew that if John asked Jesus, Jesus would tell him. That's what's astounding to me about this. Think about this for a second. Peter's the leader of the new church. Peter's the one that Jesus said, you are the one I will build my church on. You're going to be the leader of the church. But it wasn't Peter who knew he could leverage Jesus for information that Jesus didn't want to release. Peter knew John could get information out of Jesus that Peter couldn't get. That's amazing to me. We know people that have relationships with other people that we understand they can get information out of them that I can't get. They have a relationship of confidence, of security, of safety with that individual that if I walked up and asked them a question, I'd get a different answer than they would. John had the type of relationship, and Peter knew it, that John could ask Jesus anything, and he would tell him. That's astounding. Peter's asking John to ask Jesus to tell him which one of the closest group of friends on earth would betray him. And he does. It's remarkable. This is one more cool thing. After Jesus is resurrected, and he comes and walks amidst the disciples, We get one more glimpse of John and his desire to be with Jesus in John 21. Do you remember the scene in John 21 where Peter and the guys, John and James, they're fishing. Jesus comes back. He shows himself to the guys, and he calls them back. They come back, sits down with them on the shore, starts to restore Peter for his denial. Remember? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Ask him three times. 
He denied him three times. He does it over a charcoal fire. Peter denied Jesus over a charcoal fire. Um, there's this really remarkable restoration that happens here. While Jesus, resurrected Jesus, the Messiah, is having a private, restorative conversation with Peter on the beach, they're walking along, and it says, Peter looks at Jesus and goes, what about him? Because he realized that the one disciple that Jesus loved had been following them. And Peter turns and goes, what is it to you if he lives until I return? You serve me. And it's remarkable to me that here Peter is having this intimate restoration with Jesus walking down the beach, and John is following Jesus down the beach the whole way. He's not willing to stay back with everyone else. He's got to be near. Guys, I think we're way too respectful in our relationships. I think we're way too respectful in the way that we pursue God. John shows a, a love that violates boundaries and violates um, appropriate respectfulness in his love for Jesus with the things that he asked, with the things that he did, and the way that he followed him. <clears throat> and John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I guess that's as amazing to me about, uh, about John's life as anything. Peter was the leader you know, he was this, this anointed, powerful speaker. Paul was a brilliant apostle, signs and wonders, wrote almost half the New Testament, church planner. John defines himself as, I'm just the guy that Jesus loves. So John's contributions were John's gospel, right? 21 chapters. In my opinion, it's the most thorough description of who Jesus was as a person, his personality. I feel like John described to us Jesus' personality better than anyone else. John's gospel was written by someone who was more impressed with who Jesus is than what Jesus did. And this is really marked in his last statement in John 21, the last verse of his gospel. He says, and I, I can almost hear him say it in like a British accent. Seriously. But he says, now, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. <laughs> I marvel at this when what captures us so deeply is accomplishment. Read the other Gospels, read the book of Acts, listen to people preach, and the things that drive us are largely accomplishments. What are you going to do for God? How great are you going to be for God? What great things, how are you going to change the world for God? It, accomplishments drive us far more than they were ever intended to. And yet here's John, and it's almost like a second thought for him. He's so consumed with knowing Jesus and being near Jesus, being with Jesus, that he, he finishes his gospel with, well, he did so many other things. I, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
And it's as though he's just like, so? So what? So what about what he did? It's about who he is that sets him apart. John contributed the epistles, obviously, and the epistles are marked by love, holiness, and faithful commitment to truth. John talks about love, 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 love in his epistles over and over and over. But he understands that love brings us into holiness. Love doesn't excuse unholiness. Love propels us into holiness. And John is so clear about this. He says, you can't claim to walk in light and continue in sin. If you claim to love Jesus, you will walk like Jesus. And John understands that holiness is a fruit of nearness to Jesus. Holiness is a fruit of our love of Jesus. It's the natural overflow of a life that wants to be close to Jesus is to start to live like Jesus. Why? Because where he goes, we go also. And he's not going into the things that get us into trouble and cause us to sin. He goes places where people sin, but his motives are such that it causes us to live holy, though we be in places where we would have in the past stumbled. So John's epistles are really cool. Um, They're a really neat, beautiful combination of how love propels us into holiness which ultimately leads to a faithful commitment to the truth. And also note that like John's position as the only one at the cross, he understands that to live boldly with a faithful commitment to truth requires that you're more concerned with being with Jesus, in love with Jesus, standing for Jesus, than you are with the opinions of anyone else. That's where John had it, and none of the other disciples did. John had it that as long as I'm close to Jesus, that's all that matters. If I lose everything I have, if I lose my reputation, if I lose my ministry, if I lose my life, that's okay. I've got to be where Jesus is, and that's why John was at the cross and no one else. And the last contribution that John makes in the Bible is the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not primarily the revelation of the end time. That's really important that we understand that. The book of Revelation is not primarily a revelation of the end time, though the book does address end time themes. It is the revelation of who Jesus is, and part of who he is is what he's yet to do. John was given the greatest revelation of the resurrected Messiah that was given to any human ever. So John is given the privilege of not only getting to witness and be best friends, literally Jesus' best friend on the earth, but he got to witness the fulfillment of the promise of God to the world since creation, since even before the foundations of the earth. John gets to be there and witness this. Come on. How do you get this privilege? Seriously. Not only that, he gets to be the Messiah 
the living God in the flesh, his best friend. It's so weird because they played this song at the 2005 one thing when we were at. Um, (laughs) This was like the whole, this Misty album was like the whole conference was around this. It's funny. Um, So, so, and that's loud. Whose children are those? So, he gets to witness the incarnation of the living God. Come on. He gets to be his best friend. And then he's given the most powerful, detailed, and intimate revelation of the resurrected Jesus as he is in glory that's ever been given to a human. So the question I want to answer is, what was it about this man that caused Jesus to want to be so close to him? What was it about this man that caused Jesus to choose him for this? That's that's what I want. That's the trait that I want to possess. I think one one trait, and now I'm just going to speculate for a couple minutes. One trait John had was hunger. I think John had a desire to be with Jesus more than anything else in the world. I don't think he was all that concerned. I mean, John... I mentioned this right away. He came from an affluent family. He'd probably tasted a bit of the good life, you know? And he probably was like, it's okay. And he got near Jesus, and when he tasted of who Jesus was, and he got to know him a little bit, it was over for him. It was over. The idea that Oh, I want to be something in life. I want to accomplish something in life. I want to build up this great legacy in life. It was over for him when he met and touched Jesus' personality. Who is this man? And when John experienced Jesus, I think it all just dried up. I think it was all, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. John lived it even to the point where he cared not for his own well-being. He was so infatuated with the man, Jesus. John's statement in chapter 1 of Revelation, when he's introducing the book, he says that he is the partner of the church in tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, and that he was on the isle called Patmos on account of of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When he says the patient endurance, I know he's suffering for Jesus, but I feel like I got to I feel like John when Jesus was resurrected and it was like every dream he'd had came true. I could just just imagine the grief that he would have felt from Friday to Sunday, so to speak waiting to see if he was going to come back out, like he said. And when he did, I can't imagine the exhilaration that John felt, (laughs) which makes the ascension that much more grievous, I think, for John. 
I know Jesus was like, I'm going to give you someone better, the Holy Spirit, he's going to come on you. And I can just see John going, there's no way he could be better than you. And Jesus, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and I can imagine John for the next 40 days being in such grief, such agony, losing the best friend that he had lost and regained again. And so Jesus goes to be with the Father, and John is this faithful witness for decades after Jesus goes to be with the Father. But I get the feeling in this statement about patient endurance that what he's saying is, I just can't wait until he comes back. I just can't wait to behold him again. The second thing that John had was humility, and this is what hung me up this week. But before I get there, let me set some context for John's humility because we talk a lot about accomplishments and all the great things we're going to do for Jesus. Let's just take a second and look at a couple of John's. He got to be Jesus' best friend. BFFs with Jesus. Guys, come on. We're a big deal if we get to be BFFs with, like, somebody cool, you know? Like, when Trevor comes in and I get a hug from Trevor... I feel like a big deal because he's great, right? When somebody's great and we honor and respect someone and they're our friend, right? We're like, whoo, that's kind of a big deal. The Messiah, best friend. That's amazing. Come on. Number one on the resume right there. I'm going in for a, you know, I'm going in for a job at the Golden Arches and that's number one. He's a legend in the early church for a couple reasons. One it was reputed that he was going to live until Jesus returned because of what Jesus said about him to Peter. They thought, holy cow, John's going to live forever. So he's kind of a legend in the church. Not only that, though, he ends up starting two of the major branches of the church. He disciples Ignatius and Polycarp, two of the early church fathers. Ignatius was the head of the church in Ephesus. John personally discipled him, and he personally discipled Polycarp. Multiple miracles, signs, and wonders. Um, there's a couple of cool legends. One is about John that he was um, purportedly boiled in oil. And they had, they had dunked him in a cauldron of oil and they couldn't kill him. He came back up and he was fine. And so they shipped him off to the Isle of Patmos and that's why he was on Patmos. There was really no pattern for sending people to Patmos other than there's no other way to get rid of him. And they couldn't kill him so they sent him to Patmos. There's also a legend about Polycarp when he was killed that he was burned alive and that at first uh, something burst out of him and quenched the fire and they had to restart the fire and kill him again. So those are some kind of like um, traditions amongst the church. So that's John. You know, he's, he's a little bit of a big deal for the church. Um, he would, you know, modern day like Billy Graham times 10 plus signs and wonders plus been martyred but wouldn't die a few times. So he's kind of going to have a reputation, you know. So here's John, right? And he gets to see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the final book of the Bible. And in this book, it's going on you know, and it's starting to build up, and he's having visions of heaven, and he's seeing things that are happening on the earth. And in chapter 7, 
verse 14, verse 13, he sees a multitude dressed in white robes surrounding the throne of God worshiping. And one of the elders that's there turns to him and asks him, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? So, here's the context. This would have been one of the Old Testament fathers of the church. He's one of the elders. So this guy prophesied about the days that John got to live in, where Jesus was on the earth. The Old Testament, the, the Old Testament fathers, they prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. John got to live in those days. Put that together with Jesus' description of John the Baptist being the greatest man that had ever been born of women. However, even you who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than he. So he's basically setting the table and saying, you guys are better than anything that's ever been before. John, he's the, probably the most accomplished of all the apostles. He's lived the, the longest life. He's had the longest ministry. He's founded more churches. They can't kill the guy. He is a big deal in the kingdom of God. One of the elders turns to him and says, who are these people dressed in white robes? I'm putting myself in John's shoes for a minute. And I'm thinking I probably would have answered in one of two ways. I'd have probably either tried to impress them and tell them who I thought they were, or I'd have taken just a, a random shot in the dark uh, to try to come up with an answer or acted like I knew. Who are these guys? Well, they've got to be the... Uh, <clears throat> And this is the phrase that hung me up for six days. This elder looks at John, who's having this amazing revelation. Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A lot of commentators and historians believe that this elder was actually Isaiah because his response in verse 14 is pretty much identical to what Isaiah wrote in chapter 1 of his, his book. John's response, though, is what's astounding to me. Sir, you know. John is in the midst, after this incredible life, of power, glory, influence, wonder, accomplishment. He's in the middle of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus. His eyes like burning fire, his hair shining, a sash across his chest. He falls as though dead. And here a little while later, somebody asks him a question, who are these guys? And he says, sir, you know. That's real humility. He's completely unassuming. He doesn't feel the need to impress anyone. He doesn't feel the need to guess. He doesn't feel the need to try to come up with an answer. He simply says, sir, you know. John had a humility because he knew that he was the disciple Jesus loved. Real humility is not about self-abasement. It's not about self-deprecation. 
It's not about a low view of oneself. True humility is a fruit of the knowledge that we are deeply loved, enjoyed, appreciated, and valuable to God because of who we are. In the same way that he is valuable to us because of who he is, not just because of what he's done. That right there is what summarizes John's life to me, is a complete appreciation and humility for who Jesus was far more than what Jesus had done and accomplished in his life. Um, If there's one thing, and I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that I could hope for all of us, it's that more than anything else, more than anything else we would ever do, that we would develop a heart like John, that I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to know who he is. I'm not that worked up about what we're going to do together. I just want to get to know him. That's, I guess, kind of, you know, the epitome of what friendship is, I think, is when you can sit down with someone and you're more concerned with asking them questions about who they are, what do they think about, what do they feel, what moves you, what motivates you, what drives you, why, why are you this way? Why? That's real friendship. That's real relationship. That's what John had with Jesus that I don't think anyone else did. I think even the disciples were looking for what they were going to do with Jesus, what they were going to do for Jesus, how they were going to impress Jesus. And I think all John wanted was just to know Jesus. And so if there's one thing that you live with for the rest of your life, I pray that it's a deep, deep longing and love just to know Jesus, just to get to know him. So Father, thank you for this example of this incredible man. Thank you that you have made it available to us that we can know you as deeply, as intimately, as fully as did John who walked with you. No one knows you like your spirit. And we have him in us. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus to us. Help us get to know him. We want to be friends of God. We want to be ones who spend our lives getting to know Jesus. And the things that happen on the way, they're just a fruit of that relationship. Let the knowledge of God drive us in all that we do. We love you. We thank you, Father. Amen.